You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on Saturday the 7th of December on Monocle 24. It's Saturday the 7th of December. This is Monocle's House View. Today, Britain's public broadcaster launches an extraordinary attack on the Prime Minister. But leaders' interviews have been a key part of the BBC's primetime election coverage for decades. We do them on your behalf to scrutinise and hold to account those who would govern us. That is democracy. Boris Johnson is so far refusing to take part in that TV interview and it's a similar story over in the United States. We'll ask if the TV interview has lost its power. Plus, all aboard. Germany unveils a batch of new trains for its 2020 timetable and we'll take a leaf through the Saturday papers too. Live from London, Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin and welcome to the programme. I'm joined this morning by two of Monocle's favourite people, the AFP's London Bureau Chief Florence Biedermann and Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow of the Europe programme at Chatham House and formerly of the Financial Times. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. Are you feeling Christmassy? Not entirely. <laughs> Too much election around. Yeah, m- maybe after the 12th of December. Yeah, I mean, that is the thing. We all seem to be holding our breath, don't we, until mm. that's over. Yeah, this Christmas is a bit spoiled by this electoral campaign, actually. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, we heard a brief snippet at the top of the programme of Andrew Neil's quite extraordinary rebuke of Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson for failing to take part in a TV interview. Now, he delivered that speech directly to camera, and it was quite an unusual moment for the BBC. But if Johnson Johnson fails to agree to that interview, he'll be the first Prime Minister in the history of the BBC's political coverage to refuse a, a, a leader interview. Uh, it would almost seem to me, though, that by Neil attacking him in that way, there is no way Johnson is ever going to agree. So Neil must know he's not going to do it, Quentin. I think he knew that before he did the he did the face-to-camera uh, thing. Having said that, um, it was an extraordinary moment. It's gone viral around the internet. And uh, it, Andrew Neil, you've got to hand it to him. He does this sort of thing pretty well. Mm. If he wasn't going to get Johnson in the chair, he was going to sort of grill him without a chair. So um, I think that they have, I think it's a it's damaging to Johnson to be seen to be running away from an interview, but I don't think it's damaging enough to really undermine him because his opponent, his main opponent, Jeremy Corbyn, who got massacred by Andrew Neil the other day, uh, is running away behind him. Yeah. Florence, what's your take on it? Well, I mean, I I guess Johnson made the calculation that it would be less damaging for him to refuse than to go and be massacred as Boris uh, (coughs) Jeremy Corbyn was. I think what was at stake is uh, Andrew Neil asking him a question on uh, was he trustworthy? And he knows this is uh, his uh, weakest point. So, uh, all in all, I guess he made this calculation. What it shows also to me is that, yes, I mean, you can. It's not that he refused to go to the BBC because he accepted the interview with uh, Andrew Ma. I mean, when I say interview, they were overlapping someone on each other. Like you couldn't even understand what, what the whole thing was about. So that's uh, uh, that proves also that maybe uh, there is also um, another level at which this campaign is playing, it, which is social media, and it's not 
all on, you know, BBC and BBC interviews. I mean, there is another form of campaigning now also. Yeah, so Th- I mean... That may be a sign of that. Absolutely. Do, I mean, has the TV interview lost its power, do you think, Quentin? Because of social media, perhaps? Well, I think having seen last night what a ghastly, tedious debate it was between <laughs> the two leaders going at each other, um, I think the TV interview is actually more fun. And after all, we saw one of the most amazing TV interviews not very long ago when Emily Maitlis interviewed Prince Andrew in Buckingham Palace. And again, it was just a human moment of meltdown. Mm. So I don't think, actually, the TV interview has gone out of fashion. I think it's these rather boring, predictable, on-message debates between politicians lining up in a panel or something like that. That actually is a real turn-off. But, I mean, it's also a question of who who, uh, politicians allow to interview them. I mean, clearly, uh, Johnson was was afraid of Neil, I I would say. But in, in in the States, of course, the Republican Republican leaders uh, have largely stopped giving interviews to anyone outside of that Fox News bubble. That's a tendency. Yes, you will favour the journalists who are, you know, are rather sympathetic. I think it's not only in the state that politicians are doing that. Uh, I mean, even in this country, I guess. So, I mean, it's more difficult also in in any other country in Europe to see leaders talking to media who they know uh, have, uh, uh, I mean, uh, adverse convictions to theirs. I mean... Don't you think it's really worrying that we are getting more and more into just our bubbles mm. of, you know, like think, so that politicians only talking to people who are going to be nice to them and they are probably only broadcasting and only going to be watched by people who already agree with them. And then we get actually the wider picture where we are deeply embattled between these uh, redoubts, between these sort of psychological castles that we've built, and we don't understand each other anymore. And it becomes a huge shock when elections don't go the way that we think they're going to go, because, of course, our bubble has been telling us all along that, you know, we're the, we're the people who think right. <laughs> so it is the danger of the algorithms on the internet yeah. that actually just dictate, essentially, that you only get stuff that you're going to agree with that come online. It's very scary. And still, I mean, another question is if those debates or all these uh, interviews have a real uh, impact on voters. Yeah, do they, do you think? I mean, that's difficult. I mean, uh, first, polls are not that reliable, as everybody knows. But, uh, you know, after each of these interviews or debates, yeah, there is everybody tries to find a winner and a loser, which is not always that obvious. And it's always the question and nobody has the answer. Did it really have an impact on the votes? Are people really, did people really change their minds because they listened to, to this guy for half an hour who was being grilled? I do wonder whether we in the media don't exaggerate our importance and our influence in this. And I think that people are being arrogant on both sides, that actually Johnson is unbelievably arrogant that he thinks he can just say, I don't have to do what everybody else does. But equally, the media are rather arrogant in saying, that is democracy You've got to talk to us. I'm Mm. not sure people are actually watching that much of this stuff. Well, I mean, and Andrew Neil has been widely criticised for doing it, even by the former head of the BBC. Yeah, I I mean, I think he was right to do it because I think actually it is, but I'm a journalist. I think it's outrageous that Johnson thinks he can get away with this stuff. The entire Conservative election campaign is being managed in an incredibly... um, 
dishonest way, I think, probably, where um, they are actually not, they, they've not put out a, a manifesto that actually adds up to any serious policies because they know that they're just going to get there with the sort of reality TV personality of Boris Johnson mm. and one slogan get Brexit done. That's all there is to it. There's no substance. I think it's very dishonest. Yeah, it does seem that way. You know, I got a letter yesterday, I was quite surprised, from the Conservatives uh, saying that in my constituency there was no way that the Conservatives could win uh, and therefore I should vote uh, Lib Dem in order to keep Labour out. And I thought that was extraordinary to, to, to have one party telling me to vote for another party. Um, I probably would have voted Lib Dem anyway, though. And now, oddly, I'm tempted not to because the Conservatives want me to. <laughs> We're uh, in a very weird... But, you know, Andrew O'Neill has kind of a, an effect, at least in the, in the foreign media. I was watching the headline this morning, like in El País, in several newspapers. They say, oh, my God, this British journalist dared come uh, to the microphone and, uh, and blast the prime minister because he refused an interview, Yeah, which, which is kind of exceptional. And I think the guy is a bit exceptional. And he has also a sense that he is exceptional uh, because in the end, you know, you can argue that Johnson gave an interview to the BBC, that the other BBC journalists could have also have asked the question, you know, so it's a, it's kind of an unusual situation, I would say. Yeah, would the, would the same thing happen in France? Well, no, <laughs> no, no. In France, it's quite different. I mean, th there was, there is a, let's say, famous interview uh, of Macron with two political journalists who are uh, the reputation of being very tough, but it was kind of a one-off, you know. Everybody was waiting for it as it was a bullfighting, you know. They are going to ask the question which nobody ever asked. So in the end, it was kind of a very mixed result. Like they, they were deemed too aggressive by the public and uh, or not enough by others. So, But it was quite, quite, a, quite a shock like to have two journalists saying, we are going to really ask the tough question, which is not as much the case in France as here. The aggressivity of journalism here is nothing to, to, to do with France or, I mean, with many other countries, I think. Mm. I mean, Quentin, you've worked across the world. Are, are, are German journalists this aggressive? Uh, no, they never used to be. They've got more aggressive recently, and I think it's partly that there's been much more competition. Suddenly you got... Um, you've got private uh, broadcasting and television channels competing with the public broadcasting. Public broadcasting used to be very respectful and no longer because they've got to, you know, make waves. Similarly, um, with new publications and so on. So actually, there is more of a fight for space. Having said that, as I look through the German media and remind myself of it, oh dear, it is terribly worthy and straightforward and you do <laughs> rather miss. I, I don't know. I think it is quite fun, the British aggression. And I remember Angela Merkel's spokesman, the first time he came to London and she was in front of a group of British journalists, he was gobsmacked by how aggressive they were, not to her, but to David Cameron. Mm. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Uh, let's, let's keep on about Germany because uh, the, the journalists may not be aggressive, but at least their trains are comfortable. So... <laughs> Uh, intercity commutes in Germany will be a little comfier as of next year. Uh, Deutsche Bahn's new timetable for 2020 comes into effect next week. And with it is a new fleet of ICE-4 trains. 
The German government is also aiming to make train travel more attractive by reducing rail taxes, though the details haven't yet been confirmed. Well, it's a very far cry from the state of things here in Britain, in the US or even in Australia, where travel between large cities isn't always so efficient. I mean, there's nothing British people like more than to complain about the railways, is there, Quentin? No, I think we we are pretty fed up with the state of our train services. And it goes way back. I mean, back to the 1960s when they took an axe to most of the railway lines and suddenly we were getting half the service that we used to have. And I was talking to friends about this last night and I said, you know, what's wrong with British trains? <laughs> and they said, well, the That's company... an existential question. <laughs> <laughs> it's because the Brits were the first ones to get there and then they just sat on their hands. And French trains, you know, the TGV, wonderful service. Um, and we suddenly discovered, my God, we've got left behind. Yeah, of course, TGV not really running very much at the moment. <laughs> well, 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 but it's exceptional. It's a parenthesis. No, I, I mean, for me, a British train is a kind of mystery. I mean, for two reasons. Like I said, my office, people regularly arrive late and they always say, like one hour towards, ah, it's because of the trains. And there was also this wonderful story, like uh, I think a few years ago, uh, to explain the delay of trains on a line. And they explained, oh, because there was too much sun. (laughs) And why? Because the reflection of the sun in the mirror of the driver made it impossible for him to really check whether all passengers were going in or out and the train was late. So I, I love this, this explanation. In this country, very surprisingly, trains can be late because of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and leaves and snow and every other possible excuse. But I mean, one of the big problems is, is cost. Um, so here's a case study. When we checked yesterday, a train from Berlin uh, to Dresden this morning would have cost £34.57. That's just over €40. Euros. And it would have taken two hours and eight minutes. A train from London to Bristol at the same time would cost £61 40p. That's just over €70, Euros, taking an hour and 41 minutes. Now, if you compare that to a return flight from London to Rome uh, on Tuesday, that would cost £67. I mean, these pr- prices are just bear no relation to each other. It's ridiculous. They are crazy. And the Germans have a great system of the Bahncart. You, If you are a regular traveller by train... You you can get a, a, a railway card, which gives you a reduction across everything. You can't get that in Britain unless you're either very old, like me, or very young. And But my kids, who I've got a daughter who lives in the north of Scotland, and she loves to go by train. She gets absolutely no reductions at all. And it's such a long journey. And the other thing that the Brits get wrong is it's lousy food mm. on the train. Oh, God, you go up to the to the um, on the train. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> sorry, no, that was too easy. Sorry, sorry, I shouldn't have done <laughs> But I remember traveling from Brussels to Strasbourg in the old days of the European Parliament, and having a wonderful steak and a bottle of claret and everything on my journey, which was fantastic. Here, you just get a bag of crisps if you're lucky. Yeah. Okay, okay, don't derive too much the British train. I, I read uh, um, a European comparison because I studied the question before coming here. And they She's were ex- a very good journalist and not aggressive <laughs> at all. <laughs> uh, and very respectful of the British uh, rail system. <laughs> and, okay, they said the best uh, in Europe would be the Swiss trains. Um, the fastest would be the French trains. Uh, number one would be the Swiss train anyway. Uh, but the one that accommodated better the people with pets are the British trains. 
Uh, my daughter will Surprise. tell you that. She always travels with her dogs. Mm. But uh, I, I, I do love, though, the little hypocrisies of this. Many years ago, I had to go on a sleeper train from Edinburgh to London with my future wife, but she wasn't my wife at the time, and they refused to let us go on the train under our separate names, because they had to write them up <laughs> on a blackboard and they weren't prepared to put my wife's maiden name, and then I said, oh well can you just put Mr and Mrs Peel, and I said, oh no problem at all, of course we can <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinary One of the things that kind of makes me apoplectic when I'm on a train is when you've paid a huge amount of money, you've tried to reserve a seat, and you're standing for two hours or whatever it is. Uh, the other day I paid nearly £150 to go to Manchester and back. I thought that was outrageous and for one part of the journey I stood. You know, how is that acceptable? Uh, but that's a very complicated system. I, I don't understand it myself. Like, it, it depends on when you travel, where. I mean, th there is no real logic or the logic, I never got it. But what I found really surprising is too, in this developed country, uh, when you want to go, for example, to Aberdeen, like, it's more than five hours on, sitting on a train, you know? I mean, it's like uh, high-speed train don't exist. I mean, mm. no... They never thought that it could be a way also to integrate, like in the Union, Scotland, that you could go from London to Aberdeen in two hours, for mm. example, which you could... But as you a distance which you could, the uh, coast, and, you and, and, and have wonderful Yeah, but it's a pretty views. flat country, you know. It's not that you have the Alps in the middle and, and you cannot... Yeah, yeah. Speak. I have no answer to this question. But I think uh, one thing that is maybe going to drive this is uh, climate change. And as environmental activists get more and more and more fierce, if you like, we're going to see more investment, surely, in the railways. I I think mean, we're going to have to. We're going to have to, but we close down an awful lot of the sensible railway lines. Are they going to bring them back? Most of them have been converted into sort of walkways through the countryside. Mm. Or maybe we should bring back uh, the old canals and we should all go on canal <laughs> barges across the country. That'd be nice. Wouldn't that be lovely? But a bit slow. <laughs> um, I just see that uh, from the 8th, that's from tomorrow, uh, Virgin, uh, which has been uh, running the, the, um, the West Coast, I think, is it? Um, the, yeah, the West Coast mainland. Uh, they've been doing it for 22 years, and actually, they've now lost that. They're, they're, um, it's going to be run by another company, which is which is quite interesting. It's the crazy system of denationalisation, of privatisation that we introduced in this country, that you've got this proliferation of companies and then they lose their contract. And you never know who you're going to... You write for London Gatwick and you never know which train to, you're going to book your ticket on because your ticket's not going to be valid on the other train. Poor old Virgin, I have some feeling for them because actually their trains are quite smart. Mm, when you can get a seat. And I think that may be an element <laughs> of the answer, like this kind of... Uh, uh, privatization, but the way it has been done, because I mean, in Germany, in France, in Italy, I mean, train system is more or less under control of the state, like with a kind of a, an idea on how you develop, how you invest. Like uh, Germany has been investing a lot recently for the reason you gave uh, Georgina, like uh, to 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 escape from the plane. So it seems in in this country still it's not the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, now we sent our researcher Nick off for coffee, and I wonder if he's come back here because we are just <laughs> gasping. It's time for us to have a look at the newspapers, and we need to have coffee to do that with. Surely, surely. Um, so I think that's on its way any time now.
This is Monocle's House View. We're live on a Saturday morning, coffeeless for the moment. Uh, coming up a little later on, our Christmas market will be taking off. Some of our favourite retail friends are arriving right now and setting things up out in the courtyard. And we're even expecting a visit from Santa Claus. And he's promised to bring along some reindeer too. I hope the two of you are going to stay for this. Are you? <laughs> for the reindeer, yes. For the reindeer, <laughs> totally. Uh, OK, let's have a look at the papers. So, uh, still with me, Quentin Peel and Florence Biederman. Uh, can we start by having a look at the German papers? Because I know that you're both uh, fluent in the language and uh, they're all basically running with the same story, aren't they? Florence. Yeah, the big st- Sorry. Florence. <laughs> and the big story is uh, like um, the new SPD direction, which is more left than uh, the previous one. And there was some question whether they would uh, uh, remain in the coalition with uh, Angela Merkel uh, because uh, they realized maybe they have been losing votes because of uh, this coalition where they have no more real identity. But I think they have been making the calculation they, they would lose even more if they were leaving the coalition. So that's the headlines are OK. Uh, both of them are are agreeing to to go on with it until until I don't know maybe still it would be more rocky than with a more moderate uh, SPD um, um, leading uh, uh, team. So let's wait and see whether it will change something and whether this coalition will last long or not. I think it it, it does put us the media commentators sort of on the back foot slightly. Everybody's been saying, oh, my God, if they elect a left-wing leadership, it'll bring the German government down overnight. And actually, the moment you looked at the figures, if they bring the German government down, they're going to go out and get smashed by the voters. So they're not going to bring the German government down. They're going to carry on limping in a rather grumpy (laughs) coalition. But that's what German coalitions are. They're always a bit grumpy, but they carry on. (laughs) Our coffee's arrived. Thank you very much, Nick. He's just going to squeeze around there and give me this. Thank you. Uh, Now I feel like I can properly talk. So uh, it's good that the next story coming up is one that I know a little bit about. It's uh, from The Times, page 44. Women bear the brunt of the crisis in Zimbabwe. This is Jane Flanagan writing. And she says uh, that that really it's it's women giving birth. It's women uh, looking after their families, trying to feed people that are really, really having the toughest time there. I cannot... Uh, overestimate, uh, overemphasize uh, the um, the problems, not just for women, but for the entire society uh, in Zimbabwe, where uh, inflation is back to those horrible runaway levels. Uh, really, people are hardly eating, many people, and it's just such a very, very difficult time. Uh, we've seen, of course, a lot of political unrest, and I think that we're seeing a lot more fighting now. I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was some kind of major upheaval again, but it's fighting amongst thieves, sadly, and uh, won't lead to any meaningful change. I, I fear so. And when we saw last week um, the, I think, probably quite spurious amounts of money that apparently Robert Mugabe had died with in his bank account and the number of properties he had. But what we really know, sadly, is the other side of this story is the person who's really been ripping off the system was Mrs. Mugabe. Yes. And, yeah. uh, but you're so right, and this article is, is absolutely right about the women bearing the brunt of the system. And it's a, it, it would make such a difference 
if I think that there were more women leaders in Africa mm -hmm. who would have a different set of priorities than just stuffing bank accounts in Switzerland. Absolutely. I want to move on to page two of the Times. Just a quick look at this because I have a question for you both. So this is about the diplomat who's quit uh, after being asked to tell half-truths about Brexit. So uh, she says she's no longer willing to peddle half-truths on behalf of the government that she doesn't trust. The Times keeps giving her name as Alexandra Hall Hall. Why would you do it twice? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if your name was Alexandra Hall Hall, why wouldn't you just be Alexandra Hall? <laughs> I think she's the only one able to answer this question. But this is a very intriguing name because first time I, I, I saw it, I said, is it, uh, did they make a printing mistake or what? <laughs> is it a typo? <laughs> It's a it's a very strange thing, Miss Hall Hall. Yes. How, how because her mother was called Hall and her father was called Hall. I mean, they really wanted to 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 affirm the difference and the identity of uh, of her mother. I don't think we should take away from the brave stand that Absolutely. she's made of actually saying it's been something we've been waiting for for honest civil servants to say we can't carry on like this. Mm. But uh, I think so. I think uh, very brave uh, for her to do that. But I agree. It is a little bit difficult. Is it something to do with Lord Hall 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 Hall? But imagine the number of civil servants who would have to resign because they are compelled to say half truth. I mean, that would be devastating for the government. Yeah, but I mean, you're kind of seeing that in America, where where in in the in the State Department, where there really is no foreign affairs substance at all there that they can't fill the post, and people are leaving in droves. We're yeah. told. Um, let's go to La Republica because I know you've spotted something there, Florence. Yeah, something a bit juicy, like about Salvini, the um, extreme right leader. I mean, who was leader, but who is not anymore at the moment, and uh, he gives his a secret of uh, what he does when he wants to have a little treat, uh, comfort himself of uh, the, um, the mistakes in uh, Italian politics. He eats um, a slice of bread with Nutella. Uh, so everybody's <laughs> laughing at him, but there is also a serious comment in La Repubblica saying, well, if you eat Nutella, that means you need these uh, Turkish nuts to make Nutella. So why are you stopping migrants, etc.? So they are making fun at, at his... Dear, oh dear. Nutella oh, And is Nutella made out of Turkish nuts? I suppose it must be then. There are nuts in it. But, but <laughs> are they Turkish? I believe the Republic. Yeah, they are the biggest exporter in Europe, uh, definitely, of hazelnuts, yeah. Oh, really? So if we disagree with Turkey's politics, we should be boycotting Nutella? Should we? I think that would be a very good thing. There's far too much sugar in these products. Isn't it tragic that a country that produces such amazing food like Italy should be reduced to having somebody you know, snacking out? But it's, you have to be Salvini to, yeah. to advocate a Nutella, I guess. Um, I think now we should talk about eggs. Uh -huh. Yes, we moved to eggs. <laughs> I was delighted to see a story in the Times um, that archaeologists have found four Roman eggs on an archaeologist. They must be nearly 2,000 years old. And then it says, oh dear, but three of them got cracked as they tried to get them out. And the smell, can you just imagine <laughs> what the smell of a 2,000-year-old egg would be? But one is still in one piece. But I was delighted because this reminded me, my daughter's just moved from London to Wales and she's got four chickens at Point of Lay. And terrible crisis, she couldn't find any eggs. She thought they'd 
bought the wrong chickens or something. And life went by for about three weeks and they got the odd single egg. And then a neighbour came to her and says, have you got some new chickens? He said, yeah. Well, just look under this bush here. There were 18 eggs in a flower bed. All edible. (laughs) Not cracked. Um, Now, of course, the other thing that's across all of the newspapers, every single one of them, has some version on bumper Christmas feast special, what to wear for the festive season, Christmas gift guide. I mean, it's just every single paper, of course, always does it. It's an excuse, obviously, to sell a load of advertising, but everybody's got their own take on Christmas. So I need to know what it is you're doing for Christmas. Florence. Well, something very usual, family meeting, eating a big turkey. Is that quite a French thing? Do the, do the French eat turkey? It, it became French. I mean, it was not, but you know, it's like uh, uh, those kind of uh, fashion that come from America. They arrive late in France, but once they are there, they, they settle. Uh, and uh, yeah, more and more people. But if I, I was really French, I would eat rather... Um, Poulet de Bresse or Chapon. Chapon would be the... But Chapon is smaller than the turkey, so turkey is really uh, convenient. They are obscene, the size of the turkeys that you get now. (laughs) And I'm I'm a bit shocked, actually, to hear a good French woman giving in on the turkey (laughs) front. I'm not the cook. I'm invited. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Quentin? Well, we'll have turkey and a gigantic (laughs) ham. And all my family have got five children, so they all come from different parts of the the country and descend on us in London. And it will be chaotic and we'll eat too much. And then two days later, wonder of wonders, we're going to escape. We're off to Bangkok and then to Malaysia for three weeks. No Brexit the sunshine. We're just going to get away from it. How wonderful. Well, of course, there may be no Brexit for any of us. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, maybe I, maybe I won't be able to go to Paris for Christmas if the train strikes goes on. Yeah, That's the yeah. question. Because the Eurostar, they have been cancelling many of them. So, fingers crossed. And maybe, you, maybe you won't be allowed back in if... <laughs> <laughs> but there'll be turkey sandwiches on the Eurostar. I'm sure there will. <laughs> yes, but according to Florence, they will, won't be worth eating because it's British food. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, and, uh, well, that's that's it, really, unfortunately. We've, we've, we've got to leave it there. Um, Florence Biederman from AFP and Quentin Peel from Chatham House, thank you so much both for joining us. Please do stay because uh, we've got the, yes. the Christmas market going on. Uh, that's all for today. Our producer was Ben Ryland. Our researcher was Nick Toomey. Our studio manager was Nora Hull. Uh, Do stay tuned. We're live from our Christmas market all day today and tomorrow. I'm going to be joined by our editor-in-chief, Tyler Brulé, for a special one-hour edition of The Stack, discussing all things print. That's live in 30 minutes. For now, that's Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you so much for listening. (laughs) 